in chapter 11. And would somebody read verses 2 to 16? senses. 
he uses head in the sense of, I believe, the authority figure. He uses head in verse 4 in the sense of the physical head. There's some part, some uses the word head in this whole section that it's difficult to decide whether he means the head as the superior one or the head as what's on top of your body. It's not clear in the original language and not totally clear to me whether it would be better to translate this man and woman or husband and wife. There is no difference between man and husband in Greek or wife and woman. So it's the context that tells you. And I think you could make an argument for either in the context. But what he does say is that God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman. Now that idea of authority of between the genders is very disputed today. But I believe the Bible is teaching at the very least that the husband has authority over the wife and the wife should submit to her husband. Perhaps you could say that more broadly if this should be translated man and woman as generally the translations do that there is a certain um, priority, a certain uh, uh, authority that men have and a certain submissiveness that women are to have. Um, we can talk about that later if you choose. Um, he then begins to talk about something that is challenging to understand and variously understood. What I'd like to do is go through the passage as unbiasedly as I can. I do have certain beliefs and non-beliefs, and that will be reflected a little bit. But for the most part, I'm just going to try to go through this and just get the drift of it. And then go back through and ask some questions and seek to at least point out some possible perspectives on this. So he says in verse 4, Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. There's a question mark here. Disgraces his head mean his head, or mean his head, Jesus. I think you could argue that either way. But he is to have, not have anything on his head when he prays or prophesies, a woman on the other hand, who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying, disgraces her head. So he is saying that when praying or prophesying, the man should not have his head covered, the woman should. Maybe it surprises some people to find out women prophesy. But there were women prophets in the Old Testament. Acts chapter 2 mentions women who would prophesy. Acts chapter 21 mentions four daughters of the evangelist Philip who were prophetesses. There were women who prophesied in, uh, in the New Testament as well. There's an interesting relationship between prophesying and praying. Prophesying is giving God's message to the people. Praying is giving pleas of the people to God. That might be something to think about a little later. Now he says that if the woman prays or prophesies uncovered, she's the same as the woman whose head is shaved. He says if the woman doesn't cover her head, let her have her hair cut off. But if it's disgraceful for her to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. He seems to almost try to take this to an extreme conclusion. 
If they think that a woman can pray or prophesy with an uncovered head, why don't they just shave the head? You know, if she prefers a bare head, why doesn't she just have a bald one and remove her hair as well? She's going to remove the covering God gave her. Why not remove nature's covering as well and make the reproach complete? He seems to think that will be an easily understood way of showing that she should cover her head when she prays or prophesies. Then he gives a reason for all this. He says, for a man ought not to have his head covered, since he's the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Gender distinctions matter. Man is to be uncovered because he reflects God's glory. Woman to be covered because she reflects man's glory. As he said, man didn't originate from the woman, but woman from the man. Eve came from Adam. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake, to be a suitable help for him, we know. Again, going back to the Adam-Eve situation. Verse 10 is extremely difficult. Therefore, the woman ought to have authority on her head because of the angels. I'm not sure what he means by authority. Or, interpolation here in the New American Standard, symbol of authority. Does he mean that if she's covered, she has authority to pray and prophesy, since maybe in some way that covering demonstrates her submissiveness? That's one possibility. What does he mean because of the angels? Is this covering analogous to the angels covering themselves? Isaiah 6, covering their face, covering their feet out of respect to the presence of God. Or does he mean because of the angels, because he condemned the angels that did not keep their proper sphere but fell in Jude 6? Or other possibilities. He says, however, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. The fact that she's the glory of man is now counterbalanced by the mutuality of man and woman. And in fact, he says, as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. The fact is that, you know, men come from women. Uh, it's true that Eve came from Adam, but none of us would be around for a word for our mother. Uh, and then he says, judge for yourself. He appeals to them to reason this out. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? You know, evidently that's kind of the crux of the problem, that women were praying to God uncovered, and he's really inviting them to reason this through in a spiritual way. Is that really right? He said, doesn't even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him, but if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given as a covering. Doesn't nature, by analogy, teach the same principle with its covering, the hair? You know, kind of taking a cue from nature, men don't need a covering, women do. And then, to kind of cut off further debate, he says, but if, anyone, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice nor have the churches of God. The position that Paul is arguing for is the universal norm of the churches. Paul says, you want to argue about it, you're a lone ranger. We and all the churches practice the same thing. 
If you prefer to do differently, you stand alone. If you want a sympathetic ear to doing it your own way, you won't find it among the apostles or in the churches. He uses this type of reasoning over and over again. In 4.17, Timothy will teach you my ways which are in Christ just as I teach everywhere in every church. In 7.17, and so I direct in all the churches. In 14.33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. In 16.1, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. It is common in 1 Corinthians for Paul to settle something by appealing to the universal practice of the churches. Now that is a verse sometimes misunderstood. But that's what that verse is saying. I'm convinced of that. And even though I don't understand all of the questions, I do believe he is appealing to the universal practice of the churches to back up what he's saying. Now given that, what does this mean? Well, it would make a lot of sense in many ways if we would understand this as some kind of of appeal for them to practice the customary covering that's normal in their culture and society. We understand that in the Middle East a lot of women have veiled their head in various times. And that what Paul would be saying is you want to do what's customary and what's normal and what's not outrageous in your society and cover your heads in the same way. The problem I see with that is that doesn't seem to fit with the arguments that Paul gives. Especially with this argument about it being the universal practice of all the churches. Do all churches and all areas have the same veiling customs? That does not seem to be the case when you study history. And it surely wouldn't be the case in all times. We don't. So if he's appealing to that universal rule of all the churches, it would seem to me like, while it's appealing to see this as a custom, that that's probably not the correct understanding. It would make a lot of sense if he was just talking about the hair, or a particular hair style or arrangement. But that that's more difficult to me by the fact that he seems to make some distinction. You know, if she's not going to cover her head, let her cut it all off. And almost making an analogy with nature's covering the hair. Maybe he's just talking about a certain hairstyle as opposed to the length of the hair. But then why limit it to praying and prophesying? And I might say this also. One of the things that troubles me a little bit about making it the hair is that in the Old Testament, at least, spiritual men had long hair. They were the ones that made an Nazarite vow. They didn't cut their hair during the time of the vow. And in a couple of cases were lifetime Nazarites, never cut their hair. Well, Samson had to cut eventually. So, you know, I'm not so sure that we ought to see shorter hair as being a mark of spirituality or longer hair as being something that was more appropriate for worship. Still at all, there's an argument to be made uh, on the idea that he's just talking about the hair. 
It would make a lot of sense if this were talking about spiritual gifts. He's certainly going to talk about spiritual gifts in chapter 12 and 14. But this is outside of that section. You know, he comes to talk about spiritual gifts in 12.1, now concerning spiritual gifts. And while prophesying was a spiritual gift, I don't recall the spiritual gift of praying. I, knew, I know they prayed in the Spirit. They could pray in a tongue. But when he says in verse 13, judge for yourself, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered, how would we know that was talking about a spiritual gift? It would make a lot of sense to me if he was dealing here with the church assembly. And he was talking about when you come together in church, you're supposed to cover your head. But how do we deal with chapter 14 where he says that the women were to keep silent in the churches? If they were to keep silent in the churches, then how were they praying and prophesying in the churches and needed to cover their head? Still in all, he does follow this up with a section on taking the Lord's Supper in the church. And verse 16 does speak about the practice of the churches of God. Uh, so that gives me reason to think that's worth considering. Uh, but I'm troubled by what seems to be a conflict with chapter 14. It would make a lot of sense to me if he was just including all praying and prophesying, that every time a woman prayed or prophesied, she should have her head covered. And every time that a man prayed or prophesied, he should uncover his head. Including praying to yourself, private praying, or whatever. But that bothers me some. It looks to me like he's talking about a covering that you can put on and take off. He keeps talking about when she's praying or prophesying, as if that's not all the time, that's some of the time. And prophesying is not private. Prophesying is speaking to a group the message of God. And that would mean, though maybe nobody will follow me on this, but this has been a, something that has made me think twice about that view. That would mean that in a cold climate where men would typically need to cover their head, that they couldn't even pray privately when they were covering their head. That seems to be unlikely to me that that's what he's saying. Perhaps it is. It would make a lot of sense to me if he was saying that women, if they, when they cover their head, can prophesy, deliver God's message to a group and can lead in prayer. Now, perhaps outside the church assembly, since you've got the passage in 1 Corinthians 14, however, you also have the passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and in verse 8, where it says, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And that word for men is the word for the male, not just the generic mankind. So that seems to indicate that the males are supposed to lead the prayers. It would make, make a lot of sense to me if he was talking about women who were prophesying or leading prayers with other women. But I wonder if that was such a common thing as to warrant all of this discussion. And it doesn't seem real likely to me that women only prophesy to other women. It would seem from the whole man-woman discussion here that he was talking about more in the presence of men. 
So that leaves me with a lot of question marks. I don't know the answers. I'm more inclined to some of these views than to others. Uh, I'm not willing to just absolutely debate against any of them. I'm willing to suggest points against several of them that I don't see how to get around. Um, but, but I listed them on the screen. You know, is this talking just about a custom that's to be followed when it's customary? Is it talking about the hair or a hairstyle? Is it talking about spiritual gifts? Prophecy is, but it's praying. Is it talking about doing this in church assemblies? Is it talking about all praying, including private praying? Is it talking about doing this for a woman to cover her head when she prays or prophesies in the presence of men? Or is it in the presence of women only? Those are some of my questions. And those are some of the that those basically outline some of the views that I know that brethren take about this passage. One of the challenges about this passage is I know of no other passage that comments on the subject. So I believe everything we really know about the covering itself, at least, is in this passage. It always makes it more difficult. I don't, I'm not trying to say by that that we cannot come to a conclusion that's correct. I don't know what it is. And uh, so I don't know whether this will lead to uh, lots of discussion or not. I'm more than willing for you to defend your view, if you have one, in a brief and, and objective way. And even have count, point counterpoint on a few of those for a little bit. I don't think it's in, un, I don't think it's unprofitable to have discussions about things like this. I think we certainly need to be willing to examine carefully everything in the scriptures, and I don't think we're going to duck anything. So the fact that I don't know the answer doesn't mean that I think nobody could. Eric? What would you say to women who really want to please God, but they don't know how to understand this passage, and they're wondering if they're doing something wrong uh, constantly whenever they're praying or whenever they're in a worship assembly, because they're just not sure about this because there's so many different ways to understand it? Well, ultimately, we have to try to understand it the best we can. Try to practice what we can feel the most secure about. Pray to God for wisdom and help and understanding. Pray for forgiveness if we have missed it somehow. And continue to be open to the Lord and grow. We don't have infallible understanding of everything. We depend on the grace of God. But we should very much always try to please God as best we can. So I, I've tried in my own practice not to do something that I believe is wrong. And I would encourage women to do that same thing. That may not lead them to doing exactly the same thing. But I think that concept, doing what we believe in saying, is the right thing. John? To seek to say because of the unclarity of I would agree with that. I think we have to be honest about the fact that there are some things in the Bible that are easier to understand and that are clearer because of a variety of passages on them that are more fundamental and that we must agree upon. There are other things that we probably aren't going to agree upon. That's not a shock. Passages like Romans 14 indicate that there would be things we wouldn't agree upon. 
And so I don't think we should try to bind our view on someone else when it's not easy to understand. And when we recognize that it's taken us a long time and a lot of effort to come to the view we've come to. I'm not saying we can't try to teach what we believe or show it to others. I believe we can. But I don't think we make a test of fellowship something that is very difficult and brethren can have good hearts and good attitudes and believe other things than what we believe. So I'll be great. Josh? I'm not sure I understand verse 14. What, is, what does he mean when he seems to imply that nature teaches that man, men shouldn't have long hair? That is a very good question. I don't know for sure. He may be just saying that customarily men wear their hair shorter than women. He might be saying that there is something innate about that. It is at least true that men get bald more readily than women. I'm not sure their hair grows less quickly. Um, so there may be that. Often the, the word means long-established custom of practice. I don't think we're on safe ground to rule out the possibility that it could mean inherited nature. I don't think it does in divisions too. I don't think that absolutely rules out that possibility here. But he may just be saying it's customary for men to wear long, short hair and women to wear long hair. One of the verses that I think about in context to verse 14 uh, is the the fact that you brought up the Nazarite vow. Nazarites were commanded not to cut their hair. And for that reason, I'm disinclined to think that that nature there is an innate God given. This is always a dishonor, this is always an honorable thing. Because that would bring into question how does that fit this Nazarite Yeah, the nature is that it was innate, which is to say. You know, naturally by genetic origin or whatever, men's hair will be short than women. And it's true that they fall more, but I'm not sure that's the point. It's probably more likely from that word that he's talking about that just the more common practice. Mostly men wear their hair short. Yes, Scott. Uh, one of your questions up there is, was about all praying, and I, I think it relates to the fact that we are told when talking about uh, the Lord's Supper, we're told to partake upon the first day of the week. That, that implies every first day of the week. I think in likeness here, it just says when praying or prophesying. I think in that same, in that same context, it's general, it's all praying. And it could be. He may be saying all pray. Uh, although you might consider this as a thing to think about, Prophesying refers to speaking to God before speaking for God to a group. Praying may mean to lead in prayer, to speak for a group to God. If it does mean all pray, including my private praying, then it would mean that we could, as a man, never pray a prayer with our heads up. So that may be what he's saying. But it appears to be more something that would be taken on and taken off, not something that would be worn 24 hours a day. I do think, though, that's that's not an unreasonable possibility. I continue to consider that as one of the ones that I would uh, give more credit to than others. But there are some some drawbacks to that. Yes? Because I'm thinking about Jesus' name and where it was not something like the Spirit of the world, where you can 
unique prophecy involves speaking the revelation of God to others, I don't think there's any further qualification on the context, whether she was sitting or standing, whether it was to one person or many, or whatever. Prophesying could be in varying forms, but it was always communicating a revelation from God to somebody. So it could possibly have been receiving the prophecy and then maybe Yes, I suspect, though, when he says prophesying, he doesn't mean writing it, but he means speaking. Yes, thank you. seems to be more of a New Testament teaching. Now, if he's just saying it's a tradition, perhaps their culture should have called for it just to keep cultural things, if that's the position we have. But, but I don't know of any passage in the Old Testament that has to Do you think this could in any way maybe connect to what he's been saying in like 10, where he's talking about, you know, all things are profitable, not for, all things are lawful, but not profitable, all things are lawful, but not edified. And that perhaps um, some had thought, well, now that we're all one in Christ, I don't have to, there's no hierarchy, we're all the same. But here he's saying, ah, but there is still a hierarchy, and this is the hierarchy. And from there, he goes to explain why a woman would instill this context. Well, I do think this seems to relate to the appropriate roles and authority and submissiveness. So there may be a connection between insubmissiveness and not properly observing these covering regulations. Chris? What consideration would you give the fact that it's not addressed to any other churches or anywhere else in Scripture, in this subject or any other? Is that a factor? That's interesting in view of the fact that all the churches practice this. Um, I don't know. I guess you'd probably go several directions with that. Um, it might be, it might fit well with the custom argument that well they already knew it and they were practicing it and the Corinthians weren't uh, you know accepting the normal culture um, or it may be just that you know it was understood it was spoke taught but wasn't uh, written down anywhere else obviously we're not required to have more than one passage to teach something to know that it's true uh, so I don't know. I mean, this is this is the challenge for us: is not having other passages to compare. But verse sixteen surely indicates that whatever he's saying was what all the churches practice. Go. So here in this class, Ephesians five, we're talking about the husband-wife relationship and Christ in the church. They handle those interchangeably through the text. Here, you're made of these dealing with the submission issue in the first few verses. And then he's talking about this hair question, maybe using them interchangeably. If that's the case, then the verse 16, the custom of the churches be dealing more specifically with the headship of God, Christ, man, and woman, as opposed to the actual practice of the one on 
Well, it would seem to me that the practice is related to the authority submission. So it wouldn't seem likely to me that it doesn't include it. Now, does it perhaps include the idea of submission of authority? I can see that. Right. Is it possible that the custom or practice of Rule 16 is referring to contention? And the reason why I would say that is, and I'm not saying I hold the position, but it's something that keeps coming up every time I study it. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, he says he's pleading with them to get rid of divisions, because apparently that's what they're doing in court. In chapter 4, verse 17, 16 and 17, he says, imitate me, and this is why I said Timothy, so Timothy can remind you of all of my ways so you can keep them. And then right here, verse 2, he says he praises them in keeping his traditions. Verse 17, he says, I don't praise you in keeping these instructions. So is it possible that verse 16 is the custom or practice is referring to being contentious about his teaching? It would lead to the same place. I doubt it. But if he was saying none of the churches argue against this, they all accept it, it comes out the same place. If somebody wants to argue about it, they need to realize we all practice this covering of God's teaching, or they need to recognize that no other church argues about this like you do. Either way, I think he's silencing the critic by saying this is the universal practice. This is not debatable. If you're trying to debate it, no other church debates it, or if you're trying to debate it, no other church follows the practice you're arguing for. That would come out in the same place. I suspect the practice here is a different covering practice than what he said. Yes, ma'am. Is there value in looking at the historical documents? Oftentimes when I study, I see some reference saying that that was a cultural norm, and then I see one that says they're not cultural norms. I believe you can find anything you'd like to find about that. It's pretty bewildering because people quote the authorities on all sides. It seems to me that part of that may be that the covering traditions were different in different areas, different cultures, different among the Jews and the Greeks and so forth. I am not an expert on that, but you can read experts that will tell you anything you'd like. Jason. I was wondering if you could relate this at all to the current approach that the Supreme Court has a case where you have a new generation of the project praying and qualifying for the claim that he doesn't take on the shoot. I wonder if you could relate that at all to the idea of how they come to God. Well, certainly. I mean, I hadn't thought about that, but it is true that in the Old Testament at least, to be respectful to the presence of God, you had to take off your shoes. Joshua did. The priest did not serve in the tabernacle with any kind of footwear. And so that there could be something God would require as a matter of respect in terms of what we wear or don't wear. Yes, that's certainly possible. And so this could, I hadn't really thought about that, but this could be another practice that demonstrates respect for God. That's a physical clothing kind of a practice. Good thought. Clint. I guess, I mean, I have a couple of questions, obviously. But like one thing I thought about is, do we ever base doctrine on culture? Because I guess I struggle with it being a cultural custom, but he appeals to creation for this. And creation transcends culture. And like we've already established, he said, you know, if this is something 
you know, if, if we're making this doctrine, it needs to be practiced in all the churches, right? And I think that's what he's teaching in verse 16. You know, whatever we're teaching here needs to be obeyed uh, by the churches. And so I guess just another view I might offer is I think the main point of these 16 verses is perhaps verse 3, the headship roles. Uh, and then I kind of see the next two verses, five arguments he uses to show the headship, submission, uh, and authority. Like, God has roles for our gender. And, uh, and there are just different ways. Uh, five and six is a historical example. Uh, seven to nine is a creation example. Verse 10 is a heavenly example. Verses 11 and 12 is another creation example. And uh, 13 to 15 is a natural example. And uh, I don't, so in some ways I kind of see, I know people are few, free to disagree with me on this. This is totally fine. I'm just offering another view. Um, but I've, I've heard it taught and it makes sense to me that uh, one view could be that the head covering uh, would be symbolic. So in other words, for me, for a man to cover his head, would be for him to abdicate his role as a leader. And for the woman to uncover her head would be for her to abdicate her role as a submissive party. Uh, so are you using that argument that covering the head for the man would be covering Christ and uncovering the head for the woman would be Uncovering her husband and praying through him, or something like that. So, in a way, it's like the it's like the man would be doing what the woman's supposed to be doing, right? Because the woman's supposed to be covered, but the man is covering himself. So he's taking the role of the submissive one, the woman, and yet the woman, when she uncovers her head, she's taking the role of the man, and that's not the way God designed it. God designed us for different roles. He gave our genders things that we're supposed to do. Uh, he designed man for certain things and woman for certain things. And okay. hopefully I'm explaining that well. So I'm not sure that's really that much different from what I say. Yeah. I agree with you on the arguments he makes do not seem like arguments saying keep your culture. They seem like arguments based upon God's principles and God's will. That would be a reason to question the customer. Yes. This is kind of related, but I think specifically the, talking about the changing rules and the changing one plus one taking this specifically related to the two actions that this man did in praying and prophesying, where we're making direct contact with God. Um, that's that's why there is this symbol there, or that's how I understand it. That's why there is a symbol there because. We're going through that headship, and so as a woman, there's a symbol to recognize that stage in that headship between between myself and the woman and God. And there should there doesn't need to be a symbol for a man because there's not another stage between him and God or Jesus. Okay. Yes, check. Um, I read this all the time in the in the world. Where do you think like is it a question? Where do you think kind of that is one of our questions? Well, so so many. Oh, it was just a custom for women to stay silent. It was just that situation. And how does that, I mean, because 
Yes. What you're saying is that, you know, how do you know he's saying this is a custom that's to be practiced as opposed to his will? And I think you would have to indicate that in the text. He could say, he could be saying, keep this custom as a custom, keep whatever is customary. But he need to say that. That doesn't seem to be what he said. He seems to have said, this is what you ought to do. Yeah. Yes. Well, how do we know that? Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, some things sound pretty good. I just don't know how to defend them from the text. That'd be cool if that's what he's saying, but I don't know how to do Good discussion, Josh. What does he mean in verse 15 that, that her hair is going to turn into well, of course, that's a debated issue also. In verse 15, what does it mean her hair is given to her for a covering? I think he may be saying her hair itself is a covering, and that's nature's way of saying she ought to put on a covering, because nature gives her the hair as a covering. Some people would say that means the hair is the covering. You know, her hair is given as the covering. It tells you right there what the covering is. It's the hair. That's the, one of the strongest arguments for those who would believe this is not talking about any kind of veil, that it's just talking about hair. They would argue the hair is the covering. Uh, so, I mean, that, that's the, the, one of the issues in question. Yes? I've heard this talked about a lot among the Christians, Money. But then I was wondering, 
think customarily, uh, I don't know if that's in the text. It is. It's um, verse 18 in chapter 6 of Numbers. It actually says that the, the Nazarites will shave their head. Let me... <clears throat> the Nazarite shall then shave his dedicated head of hair at the doorway of the tent of meeting and take the dedicated hair of his head and put it on the fire, which is under the sacrifice of peace offerings. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they would shave their head at the end of that and give hair. Timothy 2.8, he wants the men to pray everywhere. 
lifting of holy hands. So if we would take the position that women could not pray in the presence of men, then are we just talking about when women lead women in prayer? If we're talking about leading in prayer as opposed to just praying, accompanying a prayer or praying privately or whatever. Lots of things. I realize this is frustrating for a lot of people because we aren't giving a definition. We're not saying, okay, this is, we're not coming to something where we say, this is now what it means, now you know. I know that's really frustrating. I wish I had the answer. We don't always have it. I appreciate our willingness to seek it and to seek it openly. And I appreciate our willingness to study the word and discuss it to try to understand it the best we can so we can please God. That is helpful. There are a lot of places that you can't talk if you don't follow the lines. And I want it always to be to where we can discuss passages even if we're not sure what they mean or if we disagree about them. We will come to much better conclusions that way. Yes? Said they had they had wings that were covering their face. 
uh, he and I were just discussing that they were created with things already on them to cover them. And like it says, that a woman was giving her hair for her covering. Okay. Might be an argument. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't it seem inconsistent to dismiss the turban of the priest as being ultimate practice and yet to use the Nazarite vow as a reason why having long hair is not Okay, that's a good question. I guess what my answer would be that when he's talking about nature teaching, if we're talking about just the natural way, then and when I'm always But maybe so. Maybe that's inconsistent. Speaking of the Nazarite vow, turn around and talk about the, the pre-service. Yeah. I guess my thoughts I think we'll cut this discussion off, but I do want to again commend good attitude. No, it's frustrating to half of you. Why did you spend an hour and you didn't come to a conclusion? Uh, I've heard that before when I've talked about this. Uh, but part of what we're doing is trying to understand even things that we're not sure what the right conclusion is. Perhaps the study stimulates our thinking, helps us see various possibilities. So we can continue to study. I think it would be bad if all we ever studied or talked about was this passage. I think it would be bad if we always avoided this and never studied or talked about it. I think we need to seek God's will in this as we do everything else. But it's not the only thing in the Bible. So I think we seek to understand as best we can. We study it. We research it. We think about it. We discuss it. And then we move on and work through other things as well. So I appreciate that. I think that's a helpful thing. And if you're in the frustrated half, well, hopefully you won't be so much more. I'll say at least I have stronger opinions about most of the rest of the stuff in First Corinthians. You may not agree with them, but I will uh, I will have a stronger conclusion about most of them. So, uh, but I, I think that's helpful. I think what we'll do is uh, take a, a brief break here. And then when we come back, we're going to sing some songs about the Lord's Supper. And then uh, we're going to uh, deal with the passage here. Here is the Lord's Supper.